Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Today, we're going to go back to the well, so to speak. Uh, frequent listeners of the show will recall that last month and, and you know, quite a few months here over the existence of this podcast, we've connected with one of our good friends, uh, guest of the show, and one of our favorite, one of our favorite guests, uh, Dr. Scott Stevens from Ducks Unlimited Canada. We are recording this here, this episode on Tuesday, October 27th, 2020. And we have so, uh, an important report from Canada. Anybody that's outside these days will know it's it's pretty freaking cold out there. And so you might be wondering why or wh- why do we have any business talking about what's going on in Canada? But actually, we do have some some things to discuss. So Scott, thanks for taking the time to join us here on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. I guess you could say I'm kind of like a bad penny, Mike. Right? That's what they say. <laughs> Always turning up when. When uh, you least expect it. Uh, well, and not turning up sometimes when you do expect it. You <laughs> well, know, that's, 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 that's true what too. Have happened yesterday. I kind of you gave me the opportunity to mention that it was just too easy there, Scott. We had to. So I guess I have to tell that story now, right? You do. Yep. Yeah. So we were sitting here yesterday, which would have been Monday, uh, waiting for Scott. We had lined a, lined this up. At least I thought we had lined up this little session and sent him the invitation tentatively, to join the tentatively. podcast. That's right. Yeah. And time rolls around and there's no Scott. Clay and I are sitting here waiting and there's no Scott. And so I send him a text message and I get no reply from Scott. And <laughs> so Clay and I say, well, I mean, let's just go back to work. I went back to my office. Clay went back to doing his thing. And a few minutes later, I got a I got a text from Scott. And I can't say exactly what you said because, you know, trying to keep it kid friendly here. But basically you said, oh, crap. Yeah. Totally forgot. Can we do a rain check? And so the ne- then the next thing I see is a picture of some a decoy spread. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so it turns out you had higher priorities yesterday. Now, t- to be fair, you had agreed to do that podcast yesterday on your already scheduled day off, but I think you were planning to be deer hunting, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's important to point out that I do get days off because these days when I post on Facebook, <laughs> all of my colleagues and quote unquote friends give me no end of grief about, man, do you ever work? And like, you know, those kind of things. But yes, I was scheduled to be off, thought I was going to be deer hunting. So thought a 1 p.m. chat on the podcast was going to work just fine. But then I got a call from a colleague who had said, yeah, I've been watching these ducks for a while, kind of, you know, pretty decent bunch that we've still got hanging around, sitting in a hole of open water on an ice pond. And I think I've got them figured out. So maybe you should come for a hunt. So that, that was my excuse, which, um, is the best excuse I think I could come up with, especially on this podcast for, for being a day late. Yeah, that is a valid excuse. I'll take that. And to make it, uh, to, to make it even better, you were successful in that, in that hunt. I will say that I, I took a, a look across the decoy spread in your picture and you had quite a uh, quite a hodgepodge of maybe even some silhouettes, some full bodies. I think I even saw a little small uh, small Canada, a little cackler in there, right? Yeah. So this was a duck focused hunt, but there were a few geese around, and so we put out some full body goose decoys. Um, I had my COVID project small lesser Canada silhouettes that I put out. Um, full body ducks. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Lesser Canada's. Yes. 
Lesser cannons. Okay, not cacklers. Well, yeah, it depends on depends on because when I looked at them, I thought cacklers. Yeah, they're they're. And I thought to myself, I need to I need to get some intel on that. I need to figure out what he's what he's putting out there. Yeah. So it depends on who you talk to, and if you it depends on if you talk to the geneticists and the AOU. You know what you call these things these days, right? Um, okay, but you're old school. I'm, you're still calling them lesser candidates. Yeah, lesser candidates, but yeah, some. Uh, in fact, the guy I was hunting with would call them cacklers. Um, so yeah, small Canada geese is that that small white cheeked geese? No, small white cheeked geese, I think, would be the yeah kind of the, the the diplomatic way of avoiding a label, uh, you know. Yes. On them. Yep. Yep. So I have, you know, what that that was a pandemic project where I made. About three dozen of those out of quarter-inch plywood and painted them myself, and I even flocked the heads and the tails on them. So, yeah. so it's like, yep, I got lots of time and energy in those. We're going to use those, and then we had full-body duck decoys and a few of the duck silhouettes that I'm running these days that are um, that seem to be pretty effective. And I love the way they go into the ground and come out of the ground. They went into the ground a little harder yesterday with the ground frozen. I would imagine. So that sounds kind of like a hodgepodge last hunt of the season kind of decoy spread. Got to get, got to get all these out there to justify the work that I spent building these over the summer. Is that right? (laughs) Yeah, that's part of it. But yes, it was, it was a last ditch hunt. You know, I would call these holdout mallards that you know, my friend had tracked down and there was a little hole of open water in a in a big wetland that they were coming in and using. But it is interesting. So the, um, you know, the typical schedule for ducks in this part of the world is they would roost on a pond. They might fly to a smaller pond first thing in the morning before they go out to feed. And then they'd come back to that shallower water after feeding and then they'd kind of repeat that process in the evening. Well, that schedule has changed a bit with cold temps where essentially when my friend was scouting these ducks, they were not coming out until like noon or two o'clock and they were just feeding mm. once a day. So ah. so that that can be pretty common this time of the year when things get cold. Um, and my, my biologist explanation for that would be, okay, yep, they're just minimizing the expenditure of energy um, relative to how much energy they're acquiring. So they're like, yep, we're only going to make the flight once a day and we're going to spend more time out there chowing down and, you know, hopefully have a net gain of calories and nutrients that they that they need before they head south. But that makes you wonder why they wouldn't do that uh, ordinarily, why that wouldn't be their default strategy, right? I mean, if that's a more efficient way to acquire the resources they need, yeah, but I think it's I think it's temperature dependent. I think, you know, they're burning more calories to stay warm and their their energy expenditure is much higher in these kind of temperatures than it is normally. Somebody more schooled in duck physiology could straighten me out on that, but that's my that's my simple-minded theory. We'll have to get Dr. Tom Mormon on here to uh, postulate about that. I do want to ask you, though, related to that, were those birds, uh, because you were successful in your hunt, uh, I think were all mallards that you were shooting. Is that right? They were. Yep. All mallards. Did they have good fat deposits on them? That's a good question. Um, not all of them. And it's a little bit interesting because we had flocks come in that, you know, this time of the year, you expect mallards to be pretty well colored up and fully plumed out, even in this part of the world. You know, a month ago they would not have been, but now you expect that. And we had some flocks that 
neither of us could find a Drake in. And it's like, hmm, yeah. what's going on there? Um, so I've, I've got some theories on that. But we had one nice bunch come in, big bunch of birds, I don't know, 20 or 30 birds. I definitely, I found a couple green heads, shot at those. But I also noticed it's like, hmm, there's a lot of birds falling out of the sky here. Um, there were only two guys shooting. So I was pretty sure we had some, what I would call collateral damage. It's like, yep, I'm shooting at that bird, but the bird next to it fell too. And <laughs> so when we picked him up, um, there was, there was a hen that was collateral damage and there was a drake that I never would have shot had sort of a brown breast. And the only way to tell that it was a drake was the kind of olive yellow bill on it. So so I think it's interesting that, you know, end of October, we've still got some birds that look like that. That one was not in great shape. And my theory, again, would be, okay, are some of these birds, they're not in adequate shape to make that migration leap yet? Is that why they're still here trying to stock up and get to, you know, whatever threshold of body condition they need to to migrate south? That's That's one of the things that ran through my head as we were sorting through flocks of birds and having trouble finding nicely plumed drakes. Yeah, that's that's kind of what was working through my mind as you were talking about that and you know, trying to figure out are, are those truly birds that are holding out the hardiest of the hardy and and saying, "Hey, we're going to we're going to stick it out as long as we can because we just because we can, we're we're more cold tolerant and better or more and more fit or are these birds that as you said maybe can't make that initial migration leap. Uh, the other thing that I took away from that little description there, Scott, is there's some uh, the whole collateral damage aspect of shooting hens. That might be something that I apply, uh, you know, kind of going forward. So you think that I could get away with that? <laughs> when, when a hen's in the pile, it's just collateral damage. I didn't intend to do that. Yeah, I mean that was that's that was the case in this case. You know, I had when when I was shooting, I had picked. You know, a drake I shot, the drake I was shooting at fell, but there were other birds falling. And then I picked another drake and I shot and that one fell. And my friend did the same. And actually, when we got done, we had shot four times and we had six birds laying there on the ground. So, um, yeah, that, that happens sometimes in those flocks up there that are so, so tightly together. Yeah. So, you know, and, and, and we should back up and I should say, you know, as, as a biologist with, with all the training that I have. Um, you know, there, there is not a strong biological justification for not shooting yeah. hens, you know, harvest rates are fairly low on female ducks in the population. And, you know, but I'll, I'll admit it's a game that I play just because, you know, it, it looks nicer to have a pretty picture of 16 greenheads there than it does kind of a mix of some brown ones mixed in. So, you know, I, Definitely not someone who sort of looks down their nose at folks who shoot whatever ducks come. Like I say, whatever floats your boat, you know, to each their own on that front. Yeah, that's definitely a conversation that we can have on another episode. Uh, sort of on related to that kind of fitness issue, uh, what the birds are doing this time of year and how this cold weather affects them. Just sort of a side note here. A couple of days ago, maybe it was on Saturday or Sunday, uh, we looked out our back window and all of a sudden there was this explosion of newly arrived little songbirds at our bird feeders. And so I got my binoculars and looked at them and they were pine siskins. And so apparently this is one of those years where pine siskins are going through what's called an eruption, uh, kind of migrating farther than they typically do, migrating farther south than they typically do. And I think it's related 
related to a failure of the typical crop upon which they feed. Maybe it's uh, the, the, the buds of spruce trees or something. I may be getting that wrong. But nevertheless, we had this massive influx of pine siskins in response to this big, strong cold front that was pushing through. And the other aspect of that is yesterday, we found one of those birds that uh, had succumbed to starvation. Uh, we went and we found it. It was just looking really lethargic and uh, eventually it, it it died there in the backyard and went and looked at it and uh, the keel was very uh, it was very emaciated and so right. those types of things happen especially in these in these sort of weather events severe weather events so probably want to back up here and set the stage for the conversation uh, we've kind of already alluded to the very cold temperatures that are sweeping through the mid-continent right now and uh, that's probably going to dominate our conversation here. Wanted to get your thoughts. Uh, first, wanted to, uh, in in this vein, ask you what the temperatures are like up there right now. This cold front started moving through, really strong cold front started moving through uh, middle of last week, I think it might have been. Right. But wh- uh, what have the temperatures been? I think y'all have been making ice pretty much every day now for five or six days. So just kind of give us a rundown of the, of the weather conditions up there. Yeah, probably for the bat last week, we've had highs that have been below freezing. So, you know, 26, 27 degrees Fahrenheit um, for highs. And then that at night, it will go down to 19, 17, you know, mid-teens. And so, yeah, we're, we're making ice. Um, you know, there, there seemed to be across the landscape that I was in a few of the bigger ponds that still have some open water that, you know, there's just more water in those ponds takes longer for those to freeze. All the shallow stuff is definitely frozen. Um, as I was driving over there, there are still some Canada geese kicking around that were roosting on moving water on a river or that kind of situation. But I would say 90% of the birds that we typically have in, in the fall have probably migrated. So, you know, it's just a few isolated bunches of ducks and the geese that are still either standing on ice or roosting on rivers that are, that are yet to come. So I think we have a little bit of a warm up where we get above freezing, but you know, most of the migration will have already moved on. There are just a few of these isolated birds left. There's a number of interesting aspects to this story. Uh, I think most notably the fact that in our previous conversations with both you and Pat Kehoe, we had been asking questions about what's going to be the the effect of fewer non-resident hunters across the landscape, you know, pressuring these birds. Are they going to be staying in, in Canada longer than they normally would? And I, uh, the common refrain in both of those conversations was that, well, if – if weather temperatures stay warm, then yeah, you might see that. But if we get a strong cold front, all bets are off. That's going to push these birds out of here. That's going to freeze up their resources. And so they're going to have to move. And lo and behold, that's exactly what has happened. And just goes to show that weather is a very controlling factor. When it gets cold enough, uh, it, you know, it, it has a very profound effect on what these birds do. I, I would agree with that. Weather seems to be the ultimate trump card in the decisions these birds make. Um, so yeah. And in fact, you know, freeze up this time of the year, it's a bit earlier than normal is what I would characterize. Um, so, you know, not, 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 not wildly earlier than normal, but probably, you know, over the past several years, I would say this is a week or two earlier than we've seen over the past several years. So how quick was the transition from maybe seasonal temperatures to this uh, below average situation? It seemed to me, now I wasn't paying attention to it on a daily basis, but it seemed to me that things were pretty mild 
up through the first and maybe into the second, start of the second week of October. But then boom, all of a sudden we're getting like sub-freezing temperatures, highs that are that are below freezing for like six or seven days in a row. Was it an abrupt transition the way it seemed to me or was there some gradual movement into it? No, it was it was pretty abrupt. It had been pretty nice and pretty seasonal temperatures before that. And yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of the way it comes is, you know, you you usually get a high pressure system that moves in and, you know, when it's clear, then things really cool off at night. And if you get a string of those of three or four days in a row, you know, the water really cools down in a hurry and then you start making ice. So, you know, a, a stretch of that, that's, that's typically the way it happens, but, um, you know, it, it definitely happened pretty quickly this year. And prior to that, you know, it was pretty nice. And so yeah, you, you never know when it's coming, but you're always expecting it when you live at this at this latitude for sure. Scott, based on your experience, when do birds start moving out in response to a cold front like this? Are they immediately in front of it? Can they sense something uh and and they kind of they maybe they try to get out in front of it or do they do they uh, head out immediately after it, riding that strong south wind, or uh, as it would be the case here, or do you typically see a, a, a few day lag and then the birds move out? What's your observation of those uh, of how that happens? This this will sound like an answer from a scientist. It depends, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, given the discussion we had earlier about you know maybe some of these birds that were left were not in the greatest condition, I think. Birds like that are making different decisions than birds that are in awesome shape and kind of can kind of go whenever they deem fit. Um, you know, I have been in situations where I was convinced um, that birds were, you know, really, really looking to feed hard and intensely. Like a few years ago, I found a similar number of mallards I was scouting. It was it was on the day when we changed from daylight savings time. I remember that. And I had found them in the morning in a cornfield, tracked down permission, and I thought, oh, I'll go out in the early afternoon. And when I got out there, they were still in the field feeding. I drove my truck and trailer out there to set up, and they kind of hopped to the other side of the field, but didn't even leave the field. I set up my decoys. When I went to park the truck, they did get up and leave the field finally, but then they were coming back steady, and we shot. 16 of them. And as we were picking up with the trailer and everything out there, they were landing in there again. And, yeah, those and, birds wanted to feed. Yeah. So my explanation would be those birds knew they needed to pack on some energy because they needed to go right away. So, yeah, you know, I, I think it depends on what kind of body condition those birds are in. I think if birds are fat and in great shape, as soon as they sense that pressure change, they could be riding, you know, maybe a favorable wind to the south out ahead of it. So you might get, you know, the initial push might be really birds in good shape, able to go. And then later you might get some of these birds that are stragglers and are struggling to try and, you know, make the jump south. Or, you know, the alternate is maybe like you said, maybe the birds in the best shape are trying to hang out as long as they want to. So, you know, I think all of those things can probably happen. And, you know, so we, we speculate on, what's going on. It may be different, you know, for different groups of birds, depending on their circumstances. I wanted to get your thoughts on that uh, before I shared with you that we're going to have an episode sometime in the in the near future. Maybe I think we're going to record it next month and then maybe we'll air it perhaps in December with a graduate student out of South Dakota State University, Cindy Ankor. 
she's one of our DU fellowship recipients, and she has been studying post-breeding mallards. And so she's got some of these birds. Uh, I don't think she has any marked this year. I think the last year might have been her last field season, but she had two two field seasons where she marked mallards in North or South Dakota. I can't remember. Who, maybe it's South Dakota during the post-breeding period. So she has some great data on movement of these birds out of the Dakotas in response to some of these weather patterns. And so, um, yeah, we're going to be able to talk to her about that and at least see what she, uh, hear what she observed from these radio marked mallards. And so we'll see how I uh, don't know if we'll have data on the individual condition of the birds, but at least uh, generally speaking, we'll be able to talk about uh, typically that's this is what these birds did when they moved out in response to the, to the front. So that'll be cool to hear about. Yeah, yeah, that will be interesting. Um, as you pointed out, that's the kind of stuff that, you know, you have cool information, but you'd love to have information on, uh, you know, what was the body condition of each of those birds? Because, you know, as as we suggested, they might be making different decisions based on, you know, their body condition. And, uh, and that would be interesting to know too, but you only get bits of information at a time here in all of this research. That's right. That's right. Uh, let's see. All right. So mallards, I'm going to guess, I think you, I, I know you only, uh, mallards were the only birds or only species you were able to harvest yesterday. Did you see any other species in amongst the flocks, uh, there where you hunted? I did not. Yeah, it was almost exclusively mallards. I didn't see anything else. Now, a week or so before I was in the same area, in fact, we had hunted a different portion of the same field. And at that point in time, there were a bunch of pintails still around. And uh, actually, what, I ended up with four mallards and three pintails in the bag that day. So, you know, even even a week prior, there was still a more of a mix of birds around. But yeah, now it seems to be just limited to mallards and Canada geese is all we have left here now. I don't know how much we can take from from uh, the question I'm about to ask you, um, but I'm going to do it anyway. Do you do you try to pay attention to the age ratio of the birds that you harvest? And do you see I mean, that time of year is probably going to be very difficult because there's always some supply of juvenile birds. Uh, but do you notice a significant amount of variation in your, uh, juvenile to adult age ratio from year to year in your, in your bag? Um, I, I try and look at that. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure I see dramatic swings. I, I would say, you know, when we t- talked about, you know, my hunts earlier, I paid more attention to that with geese just because I was, mm-hmm. I was struck by like the white fronted geese. We shot 30 birds and only four of those were juvenile birds. And, you know, that was consistent yeah. with the reports that we had heard that, you know, probably wasn't a great year for production for geese in the Arctic. Um, yeah. With ducks, you know, there were the ducks that I shot, there were a lot of juvenile blue wings early on in the year. Mallards and pintails throughout the year. It was a mix. So, you know, I I haven't been real diligent in recording data myself and looking at that. I, I do, you know, this year and in past years, I'm participating in the uh, the part survey and the wing, sending in wings for Canadian Wildlife Service here. So, mm-hmm. you know, I do get some information back on that at the end of the year. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't see big changes in that. Although, you know, my expectation would be, you know, we were dry here across much of Prairie Canada and, you know, I wouldn't have expected there to be great production. What production we had seemed to be late. So, you know, that would at least be consistent with some of these birds being still in the stage of trying to molt and grow, 
you know, body feathers and get in shape to get on migration. We know late hatched birds, that can be a real challenge for them. If they're hatched late, they're kind of beyond behind the eight ball right from right from the start. So um, but yeah, I didn't I I'll admit I didn't notice anything striking this year compared to other years with ducks. And the other question I guess I need to ask about all this is did the weather systems, did these cold fronts bring with them any significant amount of moisture uh, in, in the form of snow? I'm guessing it's what it would be. Yeah, not really. Like not enough to change conditions for us. Um, you know, so I would say the field we hunted in, the the ground was pretty dry. You know, it was frozen. Um you know, there, there is a little bit of snow on the ground, like maybe an inch or two and kind of the same thing in my yard. Actually it's snow flurries right now. Um, but really we need systems that dump, you know, five or six inches of snow to, to change the equation. And I know actually they got, they got a dose of that with a low pressure system across at least North Dakota. I saw some pictures from friends across North Dakota that they had six or seven inches of snow on the ground. We did, we have not, had a system like that yet across Prairie Canada. So, you know, that we need those kind of things to really influence, um, you know, the amount of snowpack that we have. And, and we have from now through March or April to, to stack that stuff up. But I would say, you know, we're going into winter and the freeze up with not great soil moisture conditions. So, you know, even if we have a good amount of snow, much of that will sort of soak in when it starts to melt there, you know, there could be some runoff if we have enough of it, but yeah, not, not the ideal scenario like we had last year where we actually had rain and some heavy wet snow in early October that kind of created better soil moisture conditions here, um, here in Manitoba. We, we haven't had that happened this year. And then Scott, just to clarify, I can't remember if we've, if we've talked about this in detail, but I always like to point this out because it's a subtle detail that's important, but oftentimes gets maybe not processed exactly the way um, it, it needs to be to understand what's going on. But when you speak to the importance of soil moisture, when you have moisture in the soil and then temperatures turn cold, it freezes that soil and, and basically creates a good seal, right? So that then if you get snow, uh, then once that snow melts in the spring, that frozen soil retains much of that moisture. Uh, is that is that kind of the way it works, or are we just saying that when the soil is moist and it's frozen, then once once things thaw out, um, you know, there's I mean, the soil is already moist, and therefore you're not going to lose a lot of it through uh, infiltration or through soaking into the soil. How's that work? No, I think the former where, you know, when we have good soil moisture and the soil's frozen and we start to have the snow melt, you know, it usually runs off and over the top of that frozen or thawing soil that's already super moist. Um, you know, if you have dry soil and snow on top of it, when things start to melt, it's just going to, you know, soak in and be sucked up by that dry soil. So, yeah, you're really concerned about, you know, which which of those conditions result in the best chance for runoff where the melting snow actually runs into the depressions and into the wetlands. So, you know, in the prairies, we can have similar snowpack, but very different soil moisture conditions that result in, you know, dramatically different wetland conditions, even though the, the snow may be the same. 
Thank you for that clarification or that additional detail. Let's see. What else do we need to talk about, Scott? Um, anything else on the waterfowl front? I did want to ask you about your plans for the rest of the, the hunting season here, but anything else? Uh, I think you mentioned in your Facebook post that I saw about this yesterday's hunt. You anticipate that being the last go of it for waterfowl this year. Is anything else we need to talk about in that regard? No, I don't think so. That's that's probably it for me. So I know there are a few of my friends on Facebook who are probably celebrating that. And now they they <laughs> oh, will get no. to, you know, celebrate the fact that it's their turn to, you know, post pictures and I'll be sitting here, you know, shoveling snow or doing doing other things. So they'll relish that. But yeah, that's kind of the way it goes. I I would say, you know, this this idea, the theme that we've talked about of you know, body condition of birds impacting their ability to migrate is is something that, you know, our colleagues have thought about, you know, with respect to wintering grounds and when birds are coming back north. And and I've always had the same question. You know, we we've done studies and looked at, you know, body condition of birds at different times before they're migrating north in the springtime. And I'm always left wondering, you know, okay, if you, you know, are collecting a bunch of birds and let's say in February in Louisiana, we say, ooh, you know, the pintails we collected were in poor body condition. You know, the question for me is always, okay, does that mean that the ones that were in better condition are not in Louisiana, they're in, you know, Missouri? Or do we have some sort of food limitation or habitat limitation that's causing all of the birds to be in poor shape? So, I think that theme, you know, that we're talking about, you know, on fall migration here has relevance and importance for for us thinking about habitat conservation work in the winter and on spring migration too. Yeah, and and this year is is interesting for a number of reasons. It seems there are so many factors that govern what waterfowl do, whether it be from a production standpoint or a migration and wintering standpoint, and those those variables uh, are are they're changing in space and time. So the combination of those during any given year is likely to be somewhat unique. There are probably some same, some common broad patterns in a few years, but this is a year where we've got a, a early, relatively early, as you mentioned, exodus of birds out of Canada. And a lot of them probably have flown on through north and maybe out of South Dakota as well, some of those northern tier states. And so they're making it in, into the mid-latitude states here as we talk about the mid-continent, maybe the Atlantic Flyway to be included in this. And they are encountering conditions, from what I understand, in the mid-latitude states that are perhaps a bit drier than normal. Tony Vandemore was on an earlier episode with, uh, with my co-host uh, Chris Jennings about and, – and Tony was talking about how dry things were in Missouri – uh, it's such a contrast to last year where it was almost record wet into the spring and summer. And then this year, I think they were they were wet early into the uh, into the spring. And but then sometime during the summer, it's like somebody turned the, the faucet off and it just dried up completely. So there may not be a lot of natural uh, wetland areas across the landscape for these birds to encounter as they start migrating south. So it's going to make for some interesting Interesting conversations as always and speculation and look forward to getting some reports from some of the agencies that are actually conducting surveys throughout those areas. Right. Yep. Yeah, that, that does always make for interesting times. Um, then, you know, where where people have the ability to manage water and put that water on, mm -hmm. the birds will find it and take advantage. I'm, I'm confident of that. So, yeah, yep. 
That's right. And so now you transition, just sort of on a personal note here, you're going to be transitioning to chasing fur bearers of various types. Um, I think uh, you have deer hunting in your sights, and I think you're, you've also here recently taken, taken up uh, uh, fur bearer trapping uh, to kind of get you through the, through the winter months. Yeah, it's a good recreational activity that gets me out and motivated to hike around and get some exercise when it may be 20 below. But yeah. I, uh, I trek about an hour north into the southern edge of the boreal forest and I trap um, marten or, you know, some people would refer to them as pine marten. They're in the weasel family and I would describe them as like mink on stilts. They're longer legged <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they hang out in spruce forests. So they're, they're a cool critter. And yeah, here in another couple of weeks, I'll be focused on them. So yeah. And muskrats too, I believe. You go after muskrats every now and then, right? Yeah, muskrats are interesting too. We're, you know, because we've been dry in across the area, their muskrat populations are down. Um, you know, places like Delta Marsh, the water level was very low and muskrat populations have been down. So I haven't chased muskrats recently, but yeah, still chase after the marten during the wintertime. Speaking of that, do you have a, a report out of Delta Marsh this year? I'm, I'm guessing the... Well, I'm guessing those bays are starting to ice over, but do you have a report on how things were there this year? Yeah, good question. Water levels were definitely low. Um, you know, I was out there a couple times in a kayak and there were places that, you know, it was shallow and I had trouble getting around in a kayak. I would say generally um, low water conditions can create some turbidity challenges for growing the submerged aquatics. So, you know, that's a project where we've kept carp out of the marsh, but you can still have conditions where you have turbidity challenges, even when we've, you know, controlled for some of the other factors like exotic fish. So, you know, my sense was it was an okay year for submerged aquatics there. Not great. And um, it, it definitely is iced up. I know there were friends who were out there recently to kind of look at it. And they said, yeah, basically the whole marsh is frozen now. So, so birds have headed south. But yeah, my sense was, you know, habitat conditions were not as good as they've been in some years past, just probably largely due to the fact that we had those lower water conditions, you know, just wind can stir up turbidity in some of those bays. And so we didn't get as much aquatic plant growth as we sometimes get when we keep the carp out and we have a little higher water. Anything else that we need to talk about here, Scott? Uh, we don't want to don't want to to discuss everything. We still want to have you on maybe next month, maybe into December as we get into the holiday season. Uh, we're not going to be talking about waterfowl at that at that uh, time, but hey, it's always good to catch up with you, being a, a friend and colleague. But anything else for right now that we need to discuss? I think that's it. Most of the birds are already on their way south. There are a few more that will be headed headed that direction shortly. So. We're passing the baton on to folks in more southern locales to to share their reports and adventures, I guess. With that, Scott, I think we're going to wrap this up. Whenever we started, I did not know how much we were going to have to talk about. You know, it was it's so cold. I figured all the birds were going to be out of there and it was going to be a short report. But you actually went out and the little mishap we had yesterday in our in our scheduling actually turned out to be rather fortuitous because you were able to do some scouting and bring back some some intel from the field. So I guess it all works out sometimes. Yeah, that's right. You know, there was a colleague of ours who used to say, well, you know, you, bi you biologists, we ask you what time it is and you tell us how to make the watch. So, you know, <laughs> that's that's what we've managed to do here, Mike. We've managed to, you asked me what time it was, I told you how to make the watch. <laughs> 
All right, Scott, thanks so much for your time, man. And we look forward to catching up with you again. And good luck chasing those fur bears now. Thanks, Mike. A very special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. Scott Stevens with Ducks Unlimited Canada. We appreciate his report from the field up in Canada. As always, we thank our producer, Clay Baird, for the work that he does with this podcast and getting it out to you and to you, the listener. We thank you for your support of the podcast. Thank you for spending your time with us. And thank you for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. Ducks.